And now... Last year, it went Turn it up! Hey guys, this is Marco Mendoza from Dead Daisy. This is Tate Fletcher. Hi, this is Ivan Davies from My Pal. This is John Karate. It's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Let's hear it. I knew all the dance moves. It just makes me feel good. How long has this Rocktober thing been going on? Great idea. Sixty-five days later. Whoa, whoa, stop, stop it right there! We're ready to do it all again. Ready on the lights, on the action, on the camera. Welcome to Rocktober 2017 on the Mojo Radio Show. Thirty-one days that will go down in history. Hey everybody and welcome to week three of Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on board the Rocktober bus, the big red bus that's heading due north uh, as we work our way through Rocktober. For those people who are new to the program, and there are quite a few joining us each week, here's what it's all about. The radio show we have here, this little radio show, is about finding people that we think have their mojo working in some aspect of the world, in or out of work. We grab them. We interview them, grab their tips, their tools, their opinions, the stuff that we can steal and put into our own worlds or the worlds of our friends just to help them get their mojo working. Rocktober is a tradition in commercial radio here in Australia where radio stations would take on Rocktober and turn the month of October into a month where they'd pretty much throw everything at it. So it was live interviews, live performances, concerts, gigs. They'd have guys in the studio. There would be giveaways. And we basically have brought it back because commercial radio basically let it go. And we thought, well, you know what? Because we came from commercial radio, we should bring it back, bring it to our listeners. So this is a special month of the best guests, giveaways, interviews, and quirky bits that we find packaged up Sounds great. Sounds a bit rock, a bit of roll, a bit of country to help you get your mojo working. And driving the desk that's bringing us Rocktober. And i got to say, mate, it's sounding bloody fantastic. Well done. This is uh, Robo. Mate, how are you going? It's um, so much fun to have Rocktober back. It was a, a month that I always look forward to in the days at the Holy House of the M's. And um, something that I can look forward to again now. And even being in the studio and hearing it pretty much every day... Uh, it still brings chills. I mean, that promo, there is no promo. And for those people who are new to us, and for some people who are new to podcasting, that introduction promo was made specifically for our show for this month of October. There is not a show in the world that would put that much production into an introduction 
for their show. I mean, it's just fantastic, mate. It's sort of our philosophy for the whole show, even outside of Rocktober, though, isn't it? It's just to do things a little bit de- little bit differently, raise the bar a touch. It is. And uh, just a big thank you to Lofty. Good on you, mate, for uh, yeah. putting in the, the dulcet tones of the big man, of the, the big man of Australian voice talent. Good on you, Lofty. Also known as uh, Mr. Sea Change. Yes, I hear. I tried to get Lofty to come on the show to, um, to have a few words, but he was lazing on the beach now that he lives four minutes away. <laughs> From the beach? <laughs> From the beach, yes. <laughs> yeah, Lofty the digital nomad. That's right, exactly. I'll just phone it in. Thank you, though. Our guest this week is, I, I guess it's kind of following an underlying tone that we've had through the show for probably the last three years. We talk about resilience, grit, getting it done. And this week's guest is a former Navy SEAL who, uh, his name's Chris Fussell, and he co-authored a book called Team of Teams, and his new book is called One Team. And he's a partner at the McChrystal Group, which is founded by Stanley McChrystal, who was Chris Fussell's Lieutenant General when he worked in the Joint Task Force in the Middle East uh, for the Navy SEALs. And I've got to say, this is a guy, I've heard Chris interviewed before, I've heard Stan McChrystal interview before, and from the minute I heard these guys, I bought into them, what they do, their philosophy, and I was dead set on getting Chris onto the show as a highlight of Rocktober, former Navy SEAL, now successful entrepreneur, very successful author. Chris Fussell, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I look forward to it. So when let's just start at the top. When when people approach you now and ask you what you do today, how do you like to answer? Yeah, that's it's funny. It's uh, it's a great question. I because um, you do that, get that question pretty regularly. I was I was in the service military for about fifteen years. Got out in two thousand twelve. So na- naturally, people expect you to stay in government or go into some sort of you know, military contracting space. And what I tell people is, look, I'm having the, uh, the best time of my life because what we've been able to do is take the ideas that we learned and were exposed to in the military, specifically fighting some pretty tough conflicts overseas. And we've now spent years uh, trying to design ways to trickle those over into industry where, where we see other big organizations suffer, suffering with a lot of the same problems. And so it's been, it's been a fantastic few years of making a living off of trying to help others solve the same problems that we were wrestling with. Um, so it's been a, a pretty exciting uh, journey post-military. And I just want to sort of start off there, Chris, because I don't think it's any secret that we're living in a, in a world that is quite self-absorbed with selfies, people posting about themselves and people just trying to take care of themselves. Yet I heard in an interview you talked about being in the teams and the teams are about the guy to your left and the guy to your right. With the work you're doing in the corporate world and the experience you've had with the teams, how does a leader create a culture where it isn't so much just about the individual but it is about the person to your left or the person to your right? Well, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it. And that's a core thing that everybody, the vast majority of, of us, want to live and create that sort of environment, right? Uh, there's nothing better than being on a team when you know, wow, I can really trust the person on my left and right, whether that's a high-performance sports team or a SEAL team or whatever the case may be. 
many of us have had those experiences and we love it. That's like a very powerful part of our human nature. I think the, the issue in today's environment is that's so difficult to replicate at large scale. Uh, as we all know, if you've lived in a big bureaucracy, at a certain point, that human connectivity tends to fall apart. And for generations, it wasn't great, but that was sort of okay. You could still be very successful and, and have disconnected actors inside your big, you know, 50,000 person enterprise. Well, in, in today's world, I don't think you can get away with that anymore. I think that human to human connectivity at every level of the organization is critical if you're going to succeed in the information age, because the, the whole world is so interconnected. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, Washington, D.C. right now watching the sunset. You, you guys are on the other side of the world. Um, we're, we're as connected as if you were down the street. And that's with, you know, some little program that's on my smartphone. That's just it, the world is so much different now than it was 20 years ago. And we felt that pain on the battlefield where we brought this big disconnected system above the small team level. It turned into any other bureaucracy where it wasn't based on relationships or trust or really having, you know, love for the folks in your organization like you have at a small team. And so that's when our leaders said, hey, we've got to scale up. If anything, we have to scale up the behavior of that small team. Remember, we all got along and trusted each other. Well, if we could do that around the world, there's no one that could keep up with us. And so I think it's more critical now than, than ever. And what we found in industry is people want that. Like that's core to who we are as, as human beings. So when you can create that sort of environment, uh, it's magic. And people really will want to be on that sort of team in that sort of organization for as long as they can stay. So is, you, you talked about the word trust in there and scale. Is it possible, because I, I suspect that if you are doing things for the person to your left and to your right, as you would in a small platoon versus a corporate world where you might have a team of 12 in your marketing team or 20 in your sales team, but to be really connected to those guys and have each other's back properly, and I'm just, I'm just saying it, but actually doing it, is trust a big backbone to that, Chris? And is it possible to scale trust in an organization? Yeah, if, if, if there's one thing that is the, the starting backbone, <laughs> it's trust, right? And then you, I don't know, all the other behaviors are the, the, the nervous system that pushes off of that, if you want to extend the analogy. But you, when we do work with organizations, we like to start with a cultural assessment that really tests them. It's self-reporting along a few big drivers that we espouse in our books. Trust, uh, alignment on strategy, sort of common understanding of the purpose of the organization, those sorts of things. But the critical one is trust. If trust is too low, you can't, you have to start there, rebuilding trust before you can put in place these dynamic systems. And trust can be measured, uh, at least the way we approach it along, two, two lines. One being sort of the benevolent trust that, that the two of you might have. You've known each other for years, your friends, you trust each other with your, your kids, your cars, your, you know, there's just that deep human trust. And then there's more of an intellectual trust where I, I respect the work you do. And so if you call me or you send me a product, I'm going to assume that it's, that it's pretty solid. I'm not going to check your homework, so to speak. When you can combine both of those together, I, I trust you as a human and a friend, and I know you're solid in what you do then you've got the makings of a high performance team. So starting and testing an organization along those two lines of effort or two lines of trust is gives you an amazing baseline understanding. And if those scores are low, 
then you can put in all, all the dynamic sort of communication processes and try to decentralize decision-making. But at the end of the day, your marketing people and your salespeople, if they still don't trust each other, it doesn't matter how much they're talking. Uh, you have to start there. And that's the whole idea of this, this book, the second book, The Follow-Up to Team of Teams, One Mission. The, the real headline in there is challenging leaders. You have to create that narrative, that singular mission that you can build a trust-based organization around. Give them that North Star that they say, okay, that's what we all believe in. And so I want to be part of that. And for that to win, we have to start developing real relationships throughout the organization. Just one word of advice though, Chris, never trust Gary with your beer. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Well, that's similar to the SEAL teams. Yeah. Whatever you do, don't put your Dosecchi down anywhere near Gary. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's an old you saying know, in the community that says, I'll, I, I'll trust you with my life, but not my money or my wife. So, uh, so similar. The Aussies have that. We just put beer in there, mate. You said a wife. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Do you know, it's interesting, Chris, just uh, I heard an interview last night. We had a, a guy on our show recently, Michael Gervais, who was brilliant. And he is the mental coach for the Seattle Seahawks. And he was interviewing on his podcast uh, Mr. Nordstrom, who was one of the Nordstrom family who started the famous Nordstrom business with 60,000 employees. And he, he's, he's 80 years old, so he's been doing it since his early 20s. And one thing he said was for 60 years he would stand in front of any store, so there might have been two or 300 employees in a store, and he'd stand there and he'd say, you know the one thing that we're going to do this year and he said when he was in his early 20s in front of two or 300 people, he'd get a variety of answers. Oh, it's about profit or margin or range or customer service. And he'd say it's just one thing, customer service. And he said after he kept on doing it year after year after year, when he stood in front of an audience and said, what's the one thing we're going to do this year? Instead of having a disparate bunch of 300 different answers, he said eventually got to the point where 300 people put their hand up and they all said the one thing, it's get better at customer service. And they've been doing that now for 60-odd years in his lifetime. And Gervais said he went in to buy a shirt recently. He said the service was absolutely amazing, even in this day right now in 2017. And just hearing you talk, it, that seems to be just a great old-school story of having that specific thing in mind. Is that a good example of what you're talking about? It is a great example. I mean, they, they, they've done an amazing job with that. Um, uh, Ritz Carlton has some great examples of having a focus on how they run themselves as an organization. Uh, we, and we had leadership in the, in the special operations community, uh, really starting with McChrystal and then a, formed a coalition of senior leaders that, uh, took a similar approach. And if I had to pick one word it, it, to, to theirs of customer service, ours became relationships. Uh, that's, that's what I remember most distinctly. When they were saying, we need to be, but it, it wasn't that simple, right? So that what they were saying was, we have to be able to move all over the world very quickly, do very dynamic actions. And if people don't trust us, believe in us, know who we are, in other words, if we don't have real, genuine relationships with all those actors that we're going to interfere with when we do our operations, then we won't be able to move fast enough. So relationships, 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 they constantly hammered it. And anytime you conduct an operation 
well, and it, this applies to industry too. You close a deal, but it comes at the cost of a relationship with a channel partner that thinks you went around their back or, you know, fill in the blank. If you hurt a relationship in our world, in the process of executing some amazing dynamic combat mission, but a, a, another unit down the, down the road is frustrated with you or our host nation partners, the Iraqi army thinks we deceived them in some way. If you hurt a relationship for a short term gain, it was no longer acceptable. So it is a great example, much like Nordstrom would say, okay, well you, um, yeah, you, you upsold that, that customer, but they were sort of frustrated with their experience. So they'll never come back in the door. I would have rather you give them half off on that shirt and know that you've got them for life. Right. So it's the same sort of the thing. It's changing the mentality of the people on the ground that might think, oh, I'm here to I'm here to sell things to customers. No, you're here to build relationships with people. So they they shop here for the rest of their lives. And is that is that what you talk about with the, the term having an aligned narrative? Is that what you're meaning there, Chris? It, it is. It's a key part of it. Um, so with the aligned narrative, it's you have to start at a senior level and challenge your thinking and say, okay, what is that, what is that story we're trying to, to share with our organization? And you can walk into any company and you'll see the motivational posters on the wall or there are core principles. And that can become dangerously fluffy, you know, because if you don't live to it, then people stop, you know, they get cynical about whatever the new buzzword is. And so when we do work with organizations on this, we're really looking for that sort of start point of alignment, we'll say, look, if this isn't, if what you're saying isn't challenging people on the ground to think and act differently, if it's not making them uncomfortable and, and not making you uncomfortable because you know how challenging it will be, then you're, you don't really have something that's going to drive change inside the culture. And so for us, this idea of relationships was, it was a challenge because I was much more comfortable as were all of us living in my little 16-person tribe, my little group of operators, uh, that where life was comfortable. We all spoke the same sort of terminology and we knew each other very deeply. But the challenge was, no, 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 you have to proactively create relationships outside of that little team if this is going to work. And so the same thing can be applied over to uh, corporate leaders where you say, look, if you're not forcing people to make a decision, I'm going to be part of this bigger aligning narrative or stay in my own little world, be comfortable, then you're not really there yet. Then you're just throwing up buzzwords about we want to be the best and we want to win. And Okay, that's great. Who doesn't, who doesn't want to be the best, right? But challenge them to think about putting the customer first every single time. Well, that's a different way of thinking and that's going to make you uncomfortable sometimes and it will challenge the way you think about your role. You've used a term before which is, uh, I think you turned with a steady cadence of operations, and I've heard you mention that when you talk about you had a mission of defeating Al Qaeda in Iraq, and one of the most important tasks for the operation was to form this steady cadence of operations. Can you just run that for us? Like specifically, what does that mean? Yeah, it, th- this is um, you know if I if I meet a an executive on an elevator, you know, and I say, look, if you're going to think about one thing, it's really here. The aligning narrative, all these other things can come later. But the, the big sort of question I think that organizations need to ask themselves now is tied to this, this cadence idea. And so 
as simply put as possible from, from our experiences overseas was the idea that we we were part of an organization that was purpose built and very very well built to execute operations in a certain fashion. It did those extremely well. Had proven competence uh, for, for generations to, to do that. But it was tied to a bureaucratic structure that could only move so fast. So the cadence at which we could move and maintain the level of order and discipline and control and ensure that our operations were successful was only so fast. You know, you could, and that was tied to you lead a team out into the field to a target, you get new intelligence. That intelligence goes back up into the bureaucratic system. And then two days later, three days later, a week later, another tasking comes back down and another team goes out to do the, the follow-on sort of thing, right? So that's all very controlled and disciplined. When we started indexing that against fast, the problems were changing the ground, how quickly Al-Qaeda as a network of connected individuals was redesigning itself, not because it had some great idea, just because it was an organic and very fluid group of, of individual human actors that had opinions and could sort of do whatever they wanted. We started to realize they are changing every day. Every single morning when we wake up, we're facing a slightly different army. And that intelligence that we got yesterday, it's still somewhere in the system. And it's going to come back down today or tomorrow or whenever it does. We started to realize what that was based on. The image that we had when we got this intelligence, that army outside has changed twice, three times, four times. So we're never going to catch up with it like this. So the delta between how fast you can move at full optimization, and you know we're rarely there and it's not sustainable, that versus how fast the problems are changing in your environment, that's what you have to solve for now. Most of us, are, most big enterprises are, they're optimized against a quarterly and annual cycle. You know, so that's kind of what everybody looks at. That's when we report our numbers and that's when the year ends, et cetera, et cetera. Well, meanwhile, in the information age over the last 15 years, 20 years, we've seen these external problems with, they don't have a rule book, right? So they grow overnight and they cause global disruption in an instant. So you have to be able to close the gap between those, uh, those two diff- different time horizons. So Chris, with let, let's just talk about that. The Al-Qaeda has been said to be a very fast-moving competitor in the forces. And I suspect with technology for the person working in business, they're also facing a very fast-moving competitor if, if somebody is strategic. What, what do I do to change the cadence? Because I, I see this a lot with the corporate world as the decisions. And in fact, I was working with a very big corporate in, in Sydney only last week. And their comment was how slowly the business moves. And when they're trying to innovate, problem solve, or be at the front end of strategy, it's just such a slow moving beast. With your experience of Al-Qaeda, where everything's on the line and you need to change that cadence, what are the steps that somebody could go through to change that cadence? Well, the first thing I would say is you're not going to change it You'll, you can change it, but you won't get it fast enough by trying to add additional layers of optimization to your existing bureaucracy, right? Those bureaucracies have upper limits and because they're designed for control. They're designed to lower your risk and they're, they're, they're really good at it. They're designed to take all the chaos of the three-dimensional world that we live in and sort of jam it into a two-dimensional 
framework where I work for you and I tell you what I've done and you work for Bob and Bob tells you what to tell me, da, 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 right? So those are, they're really good at doing that. But they're, so, so if you try to optimize that two-dimensional view of the world to fight with this three-dimensional, constantly changing networked information age, it just doesn't work. I mean, you'll never get there. The only thing you're going to do is kill your people. You're going to burn them out. And we see this all across industry, as I'm sure you do, which is what's the number one people thing people say? They're like, look, man, I've got 487 emails that come into my inbox every day. I am on, you know, seven hours of conference calls before lunch. Like, I can't think. And what, what I think that is uh, a reflection of is we're just jamming too much multidimensional information into this two-dimensional framework, right? So that's a long way to say you're not going to get there from here. You have to change your thinking, right? And what we learned and what we espouse with organizations is it starts with that sort of operating cadence. How quickly do you need to recreate that alignment in your organization? And then leaders have to become comfortable rethinking the way that they create information flows. And so we use this term called shared consciousness, which is if, if you've been on a great small team, the reason you can throw a, a blind pass in basketball or whatever the case may be, you know, trust the person around the corner on the mission in special operations and just know what they're going to do next is because you all have this, this deeply shared understanding in the moment of what's happening around you. You know each other well, and you're reading the situation the same. So if you could do that at scale, then you don't need to bury yourselves in constant permissions and meetings, et cetera, et cetera. You can, at 30,000 people, you can move with that same level of fluidity. Now that comes through, for us, it came through a very, very disciplined approach to how we communicated. So we, because Al-Qaeda was moving so quickly and changing every day, our leadership also adopted a 24-hour uh, communication structure where we would spend the first 90 minutes of every 24 hours with, in time, it grew to six, seven, 8,000 people every single day, resynchronizing for 90 minutes in a global video teleconference. And that was a, that was a conversation about what we were seeing on the ground. That would create that idea of shared consciousness at massive scale. So everyone around the world would feel like, okay, we're, I get it. We all, we all see the problem the same now. Then we would go into these windows of, you know, 22 and a half hours of massively decentralized decision-making where teams could then go out and move from point A to point B to point C with speed and fluidity without checking in for permission every single time because they understood the problem set. And our leaders now trusted that their understanding was deep enough to, so that they could act with autonomy, right? So that is a completely different mindset. Right? And that's where when leaders talk about moving faster, we moved faster by orders of magnitude only because the teams on the ground were allowed to adapt in the moment. And you can't adapt in the moment if I have to check in with my boss and he has to ask his boss, etc. It's only by really empowering those teams, but it comes with finding a method whereby you can create that level of shared consciousness and understanding. If you don't come up with some sort of structure for that, then to decentralize is to add massive risk. 
right? So it's that finding that balance between the two that was critical for us. It's it, that decentralized command is is very interesting because I think a lot of leaders are challenged by that. Boards are challenged by that, particularly people who like to have control. To to do what you're talking about, and then have the trust of your team to execute in a decentralized method. How how does one hold accountability in that, Chris? So for the learnings that you guys have had, and I've heard decentralized commands talked about, uh, I buy into it. The the accountability bit, I think, is what challenges leaders. How how does that run? Yeah, decentralized, uh, flat, uh, networks, um, leaderless movements, all these things can be dangerously buzzwordy. And if you try to implement them just as, well, okay, uh, we should decentralize, you're adding significant risk to the organization, right? So this is where it gets uncomfortable and difficult for leaders uh, in many ways because this is a an organizational change. This is not a, you can't just stand on your pulpit and say, okay, team, we're going to decentralize. So go out and just do stuff because your teams are going to go, okay, boss, but like, I don't have access to the right information. Now you're just putting the burden on me to what run through the environment and just do a bunch of stuff. Like, I don't know what you want to accomplish. And by the time I get to point decision number three, like I guarantee it's not in line with the last conversation we had. So I'm either going to take that next action and add unmeasurable amounts of risk because I really, I just really don't understand anymore. Or most likely, I'm just going to take a knee and say, okay, I'm done, right? I don't understand well enough. And then you're going to get frustrated because you say, I empowered you. Why aren't you doing stuff, right? So that's the tension that's going on right now in organizations when they just use the buzzy empowerment words, right? That's why the the process has to be layered in on top of it, right? And so you can control for the risk through two methods, really. What I try to argue in, in one mission is, one, that communication structure that, that I described that we use. Ours was hyper-aggressive because it had to be. And I don't care if you, if you video teleconference, conference call, meet face-to-face, use information portals on your intranet, there's, get on Slack. There's countless ways you can you can create that shared consciousness, that understanding of the problem. Do it at the pace that makes sense to you as a leader in the organization. So you control that time horizon so that you're comfortable that they understand the right information on the right cadence. That's one way to de-risk it. And the other is then go in with the assumption that not all actors in your organization are equally qualified. Some are new, some are super experienced, some are always going to be a little bit risky in their decision-making. So you cascade different types of decision-making authorities down to different teams and different leaders. So you don't just say blanket, now we're all just equal actors and run around and do whatever you think is necessary. So we had, because in in a military context, you could give, going back to a traditional sort of conventional fight, you could give very specific point A to point B direction to a team because you were were literally trying to take terrain or trying to move across the country and capture the, the capital city. Well, in today's fight, that it's nothing like that. You just all share an environment. So you can't constrain teams through uh, time and space. You can constrain them through decision-making authorities, what they are allowed to decide to do independently at their level. That can be resourcing decisions. That can be relationships that they're allowed to leverage without going through you. 
That can be the ability to close deals, look at new markets, countless things, right? But leaders that make a very deliberate decision about what Chris can do and what Karen can do and what Bob can do, et cetera, they then set a framework to control, to add the second version of control, which is I can de-risk this by very, very specifically delegating decisions. And then as people perform, I can add more and more decisions into the decision-making rights into the space that they control. And if they screw up, I can take them back. So that's my new lever that I pull. Getting together each morning for 90 minutes, and I've heard you talk about that with with, um, with Stan McChrystal, how you did that with the 90-minute video hookup. Is that a version, Chris, of like the agile workplace, like sort of the Rockefeller principles that Vern Harnish would talk about? Is that stand-up meeting in the corporate environment for 10 minutes? You talk about what's going on. Do you have the resources? Do you need anything from me? Yes, no, go ahead and execute. Is it? Is that what you're talking about, is creating, in, in, in whatever fashion, creating the agile environment to get together, review the mission and what's needed? It, it is, yeah. It, I mean, there, there are many similar uh, aspects to it from a sort of relationship and culture perspective and really what you're trying to accomplish. What, what that did for us was allowed us to pull that methodology up to a global enterprise, which is the real challenge, right? So agile teams and that, that approach to engineering, et cetera, I mean, those, aren't, those are great ideas and they've proven very valuable and they're not, they're not new, right? That's been around for a while. The problem is that just like in the special operations, we, had, we didn't call it that, but like the way a, a small team iterates and comes up with new tactics, um, it's in a very similar sort of uh, exchange of ideas mindset, right? And, but that's, that's hard to scale up to the bureaucracy above you. We just never needed to do that, right? And so most industry, if you go down far enough, call it what you want, you'll find awesome teams that are doing great stuff. Uh, it's a matter of connecting that mentality up. That's the hard part in today's environment. We've never had to do it before. As, an, as a you know, big industry, military, et cetera, this is a new challenge. And so it, there's an interesting case study in one mission of the work that uh, Brad Smith and his team at Intuit, you know, that does TurboTax, Quicken, and all those uh, great products out on the West Coast. We worked with them for about a year, and he put in place this awesome communication structure and decision-making model, et cetera. And the way he described it in hindsight was, this is, uh, this is agile for enterprise. I can now, I can move as fast as my engineering teams up at the corporate level, and we've never been able to hit that level of synergy. So it's the same concept, just on a bigger scale. So any, any organization of any size with a number of people will set a strategy, and I'm sure it's the same in the teams. There are always those that don't agree with the strategy or the direction. So I suspect with any plan to be executed, it's going to come with its own sense of misalignment and or friction. How do you view friction within a team? How, do you, how did you deal with it? How did you view it? What was your take on it? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's always going to exist and it should, right? It's healthy that it exists. Um, my, my personal reflection on that is in a, in a traditional sort of siloed bureaucracy, um, it can look really pretty, right? Because you're on this quarterly cycle and here's the reports, et cetera, and everybody execute. But you know, we've all been there. There's still massive grumbling all sorts of passive aggressive behavior. And so when you have these little things slow down, it's hard to tell why it's hard to, and people, good bureaucrats, if you're, if you think of it as a bad term, 
they know that how to hide their negative influence on the strategy. And so it's very hard to root that behavior out. But you know it's out there. That's why you know, it drives senior leaders crazy because they just can't find who's undermining them, right? Well, in it, this, didn't, this didn't make everybody love all the ideas. But what it did do was it, much like if the three of us are in a, have started a company and it, you know, somebody's un- undermining the idea, it's going to be pretty obvious who it is, right? At a certain point, it's hard to root that out, really get honest conversations on the table. By resynchronizing so aggressively with so many people, it just pulled those conversations into the mix. And it didn't make us everybody agree with everything, but there were very few shadows where you could hide. So it was a big spotlight. And if there were issues with it, you, ha- you, you had the opportunity and, and you were accountable to bringing those up very quickly. And if you tried to sort of passive aggressive your, your way through something, and everybody's guilty of that, it's just human nature. He was immediately transparent to people in the organization because people could see, hey, wait a second, you know, Bob was going to do this and you should have known he wanted to do that, but he didn't have the right resources. You were sitting on those resources. You should have proactively reached across and, and done that. In a, in a big bureaucracy, I can hide that action, right? In a transparent model, everybody, all eyes now come to me, not to Bob for not succeeding, but to me for not enabling him to succeed, right? So it, it through, hopefully through just good positive intent, but all through, also through transparency, it just drives a significant behavior change where people say, okay, we're not all going to agree, but at least we're going to get it on the table and we're going to have honest conversations. It sort of goes back to that Jocko and Leif Babbitt book, Extreme Ownership, isn't it? I mean, really at the center of that is taking ownership of that situation to know either I should have known about that or... I know about it and speaking out. So it does go back to that true ownership, doesn't it? No, that's, that, that's exactly right, which is, you know, and, and Jocko and Leif do a great job of uh, laying that out uh, at a high-performance, small-team level. But the, 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 the challenge is how do you make, how do you make your 25,000-person global enterprise act like a SEAL platoon? That's when it becomes really challenging, right? And it's easier to just stovepipe it. It's easier to just say, ah, I don't know, just every, all the teams do a good job and give me the reports at the end of the month and I'll tell you what to do next, right? And to, to, to pull up that small team behavior does require a different approach to process and coordination from, from senior leadership. But it must be doable in a way, Chris, because if you look at the SEALs as an organization, which they are, they, they seem to have done it now where pretty much if you are in the SEALs, to a man, I'm sure there's exceptions, but to a man it seems to have this aligned culture, values, belief in each other. I mean, as an organisation, it must be doable if the right steps are put in place. Oh, it's, a, it's entirely doable. I mean, that's, uh, I, I am the first to say, yeah, this, this can happen. It's, it's not easy. And, but nothing worth doing is easy. I truly believe that. And it's not buzzwords, right? They're, this is leaders rolling their sleeves up and saying, okay, I am going to think deeply about the new environment we're in. And I am going to lead this organization, not from a corner office or the top of an org chart, but I am going to get into the middle of this organization and lead it like I did when I was leading a small unit on the ground. And that means I'm going to know people. I'm going to develop relationships. I'm going to ensure we all trust each other, et cetera. And so that's the challenge that, that leaders face in today's environment, in my opinion, is really 
readdressing and, and pulling that mentality up to the senior level. I just want to talk about the SEALs for a second and, and some of your own characteristics as a successful Navy SEAL. Uh, you've said, the term I heard you say, which I thought was interesting, you said rational fear requires irrational thinking. And I suspect that a given day, any SEAL is going into an environment where fear is present. What does that mean where rational fear, which we all face, requires irrational thinking? Hmm. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, I found it somewhere. Is, it, is either something you mentioned in another podcast or in a blog? So yeah. I, I looked, I listened to a lot of your stuff over the last couple of months. Uh, so I don't know where you said uh, it. Well, I mean, yeah, let, let's talk about that a, a little bit. I mean, I, and it could, if anything, I can try to debunk some of the myths. And uh, look, I think, I think Jocko and some others out there have been, been great at really trying to be honest about the mentality of um, not just the SEAL teams, but high performers across the spectrum, which there's a, there's a real fascination with that stuff these days. The, the, the special operations community, it has a great selection. All of, all of the communities have a great selection model. They vary, but they're all very intense and powerful. Well done. And, and they're good at finding people that can uh, compartmentalize effectively so they can, they, can, they can have a bad experience and say, well, I'm going to tuck that away because I've got another challenge coming up and I'm not going to dwell on what just happened three minutes ago. Um, they can live in these shorter time horizons so they can, you know, in the SEAL training, for example, you can be, you know, freezing cold in the middle of the night, uh, in the waters of San Diego, uh, just we, you can't even think of your own name. They get you out, warm, warm you up and you know, you're going to have to do something again. And you're only focused on that next thing. Not the fact that you're going to do that same painful thing. 47 times in the next three days, right? So you just say, nope, I'm just going to think about this one next thing I'm going to solve. I'm solved for that issue, right? So it, and there's a whole host of traits. What they don't select for, and, and uh, it, just because you, you couldn't, if not people, people aren't wired like this, is like n- no sense of fear, right? That's not something that exists, right? So these aren't cyborgs. These, these are real human beings that get into tense situations, and have to figure out how to deal with that fear, and not by making themselves not fear it, right? So there, there are situations where it's completely rational, and you want people that understand this is a place, this is an environment that I should be fearful in, and because that's gonna, that's gonna get my adrenaline in the right spot, that's gonna get my thinking clarified. I'll be able to triage situations very clearly uh, when I understand the, the how severe the stakes are, etc. Um, I don't want uh, just a emotionless sociopath that doesn't understand the stakes in that moment, right? And so what we often, I think, what popular culture likes to wash away as like superhuman behavior is a combination of certain core personality traits and a disciplined exposure through training and in today's environment through through deployments in the combat zones, uh, exposure to that reality so that they can, when they're in the moment, really say, okay, I can deal with this. Here's I'm going to tone it down, make the right decision. But it doesn't mean that that guy isn't thinking this is this is a really frightening moment, and I hope we survive it. Right? They're not they're not non-human. It's it's something that's occurred to me, Chris, and I'm interested in your views as somebody very close to the SEAL community. If I go back when I was a kid many years ago, there was a, certainly a, a cloak of 
darkness over the seals. They were this elite group that we knew nothing much of. But seemingly in the last, I don't know, call it three to five years, we've become a lot more exposed to what's going on with the seals. And now we're getting more of an insight into the rangers and the marines through books and podcasts and blogs and interviews. And what I was curious about is why, why we have this fascination with the SEALs and the Rangers, the Marines and so on. And I was talking to a, a couple of different positive psychologists on the show and I posed this question. And my theory was that we as a society are craving discipline, but we look at you guys as being a wonderful example of discipline when it's all on the line and you've taught yourself to be disciplined and we as civilians, as the community, we want some of that. What's your take? That's just my take. That's my thought. And positive psychologists thought I was onto something, which is quite interesting as a thesis, uh, which Robert thought was a bit of a joke. But anyway, um, what's your take on that? Why are we so interested in the SEALs and those sorts of communities? That's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of it like that. Uh, that I would, but I would agree with you. That's probably uh, an, the seeking of order, discipline, structure, etc. is probably part of all this. And this this extends everything I'll say here extends well beyond the SEAL teams uh, and it just into the military in general. Uh, I mean, this is a fascinating topic. I could talk talk about this for hours. Uh, we can, we can, mate. The- <laughs> settle back, get yourself a beer, just settle in, mate. Yeah. We can. It's rock sober. Uh, We're going long form. Yeah. <laughs> Specific to the SEAL teams, I think. Um, that the people people love um, sort of mysterious military organizations. We always have, you know, like what kid at five years old didn't want to be a, a ninja, right? I mean, that's just, or a samurai warrior. I mean, that's just how we grow up. Like, oh, it's amazing. And so uh, for better or worse, like this, the, 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 the SEAL community and the missions that have been involved in for the last eight or 10 years have gotten more and more public attention. Some of that's just, the, the transparency of the modern world. Some of it's been, you know, political leadership um, leveraging successes um, to make a point. And I mean, I have a I have a mixed opinion on this, but it mostly falls on the side of I think it does more good than than harm, honestly, um, because there's a there's a there's a goodness uh, I truly believe in the world knowing um, that there are forces like this in our country and with our coalition partners that also do amazing work that are this capable. They are, there are these disciplined forces that will go around the world to interdict uh, folks that would, would do us and our allies harm. Like, that's a very powerful mental tool, and it's true. So the exposure and the, and the, and the impact that that has on, our, on would-be threats is real, and you can see that when you listen to how they talk about the risks they're willing to assume, right? So... Uh, an understanding of that capability, I don't think, is 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 all bad. the The attraction to it beyond just that, like it's it's cool, and I love the movies. Um, the, to your point, the the discipline I think is a really interesting way uh, to look at it. I also think there's just a probably connected to this other conversation we've been having around, you know, disruption in the industry, etc. People are seeing the world get. Uh, more and more crazy, right? Where look at things like uh, Brexit, like our recent election cycle here in, in the U.S., uh, other examples, economic cycles, etc. 
some of it's overhyped because of the information age and we're just we're all getting, you know, Twitter feeds all the time. But some of it's true. I mean, we we just had an election in the US that was just unpredictable, obviously. And so that leads to a uh, you know, a deeper sense of uncertainty in the population around the world, I think. And in times like that, people want institutions that they can believe in. And the military and the special operations communities, uh, really because of the notoriety, represents that in a lot of people's minds. They're like, well, here are some, here's an institution and, the, and people that give us stability. There's still something out there that we can believe in, um, which is good and true. I do believe that. But there's also a risk to that where if you look at sort of popularity polls in the U.S., that I'm, I'm proud of this as a member, but the, the military is like the last standing national institution that has that level of respect. Our Congress is poorly rated, our elected officials across the board, et cetera, education, healthcare, every, everybody's under pressure, but the military is still on this pedestal. And so you see more military figures retiring into very, very significant positions in government and other spaces, which again, I, they're all on a repeat, but I think that's good. But I, what I think is sad is we don't believe in any of these other institutions to also be able to handle uh, massively uh, significant positions with you know, global pressure, et cetera. Um, there's risk there. So we're, we're sort of hedging into one vertical, probably for understandable reasons. But I wish those I wish we respected as many other institutions, our diplomats, our uh, educators, our healthcare providers, as we do and especially our elected officials, as we do um, our military service members. That's such a good point. I already hadn't thought about that. Because you start going through politics, you go through the church, you go through all these bodies, the corporate world, and the news is just full of people who aren't doing what they were elected or asked to do, whereas you don't hear the same. So that's a really interesting point, actually. That's, uh, that's, that's gold. Well, if, if nothing else, I'm glad I made one uh, potentially good point. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think we're in a bit of a role here, Krista, but I, I think that's, that's a very thought-provoking uh, concept that I hadn't really been down. But um, can I just There's turn this to... There's probably historic examples. Um, you know, if you went back in times of great disruption, which I think, look, I think the big disruption right now, we're, we're, we're transitioning into the information age, right? So has, there hasn't been... A significant, this significant change in the proliferation of information since uh, the printing press, you know, and that, that took a hundred years, right? There was a, the whole production side to that um, before it really took hold. More than that, literacy had to catch up um, and then ideas could be spread and it, and it massively uh, destabilized traditional structures. And so that creates real uncertainty in the population, et cetera. So they start to look for institutions they can believe in. Well, we're going through that now again with the information age where we can all access everything all the time. And we, we are yet to figure out how to deal with that. People are scared and uncertain. So, again, they look for institutions and individuals they can, they can put their hopes in. With what you've learned from the teams, Chris, and the writings you have now, if there is a great lesson that you would endeavour to pass on to children, what would be the most important lesson you've taken from your career thus far that you think is important for kids to know? That's super interesting. I am uh, getting my kids home swim practice. So uh, that's thought-provoking as I <laughs> look at my two little kids. <laughs> it's all in the timing, uh, right? That's right. That's perfect. So we have a lot of young folks in our organisation. I, I teach a college course. Um, 
So I'm fortunate to interact with, you know, 18 to 27 year olds pretty regularly. And then my kids are uh, six and nine. So a generation behind that. Um, look, the, 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 if I try to impart one thing on my, on my kids, it's that the one thing that isn't changing that quickly is human nature, right? So what principles are just as true now in the information age as they were for me as a kid, as they were for my great, 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 great grandfather. And it comes back to some of that earlier issues we were talking about, development of relationships, people trusting you, et cetera. Uh, so start with character. Like you, you have to become a, a good, dependable, character-based individual in the world. And I don't care if that's in the information age or in a much more static environment. That still matters, right? That's core to who we are. Um, so I don't, even though there is disruption, I don't think we should let it uh, scare us too much and start to fundamentally question who, what really matters as a human on this, this planet. So I think that's, that's one. And the other point that I make to, I mean, that's, that's a message that I try to have delivered with my kids pretty regularly. The, the other for, you know, young professionals or folks entering, you know, in college that I, that I work with there, the, another theme that I constantly talk about is, look, you guys are going to figure this out, right? So we are, me, you guys, like we're in this generation of, uh, okay, we're kind of halfway into this thing. We're not, we, we grew up in these big systems, but they don't work anymore. And so it's easy for, you know, a, a digital native that's just entering the, the professional space to say, hey, that's not going to work anymore. And I, I try to constantly harp on, you know, that, that demographic and say, hey, we know it doesn't work. Like in a blink of an eye, you're going to be in charge of this thing. So we have to figure out, you as digital natives, us as the folks that are trying to rewire these old organizational models, we're all in this together. And I'm going to be retired before you know it. And you're going to have to come up with a system that works. So let's put our heads together and admit this isn't, this is way bigger than Gen X versus millennial versus baby boomers. Like this is a massive shift. And so bring all of your talents and thinking as a digital native and figure out how big systems are going to work. How are governments going to run? How is healthcare going to operate in 50 years when digital natives are, are, are in charge of it? And, the three of us are long gone, or at least too too tired to care anymore. <laughs> so that's another uh, sort of important lesson I try to bring, make a point of. You you come across as a very curious guy, Chris, and I've taken that from your writings and hearing you speak. What's just to finish up before I, I let you share where guys can get a hold of your books and learn more about you and the work the McChrystal Group does and so on. Being curious of the world around you, what's, what's one particular area of your own world that you are currently working on to be better at? Because we look at the SEALs and people in that industry who've got it all on the line and we figure they've all got it together. But the thing I like about you is you seem to be constantly pushing and looking for the next solution, the next thing. What is it that you're looking to improve about yourself right now that you're working hard at? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I, as I mentioned, I'm a father. I have a great wife. We've been married for nearly 15 years. We have two little kids. Uh, they're relatively six, six and nine. Uh, first and fourth grade here in the U.S. And that's probably, that's an area that I am now uh, endlessly fascinated with. And 
parenting is new to everybody. <laughs> like you're not a parent until you have kids and you've got a finite window to try to get it right. And you can obsess on it and really mess your kids up or you can just try to be thoughtful at each stage and say, look, I've got this, this real responsibility. I have to try to be the best parent I can to these kids and develop them into good humans before they don't listen to me anymore. And so that's an area that I, you know, is probably top of mind when you, when you ask that question for me these days is, am I being the right type of uh, example and father to, to my children? And that's a hard question. You never know, right? You won't know until they're out in the world and then, you know, you hope, hope for the best, but I don't think you can, I don't think you can do poorly by really trying to trying to address it thoughtfully and you know I so so I do spend a lot of time thinking about it these days and I I framed it someone asked me recently like how would you frame that uh, out you know how do you consider that when it comes to because I talk a lot about trying to demonstrate character to our kids and my my father died when he was 60 and so I didn't have children yet Um, so my kids had never met my dad and I realized recently, like, well, I, I talk to my kids about my dad all the time. So they have an opinion about my father just based on the way I describe him. And I had a good dad. Like, he was, he was great. He was very attentive. He was involved in our lives. So I think I, I basically described to them a good person, a good father. Um, so had my dad been a jerk, they would have a totally different person, opinion of a person they've never met. So I, now I try to frame it through that. Like, what sort of character am I demonstrating to my kids by considering if I died tomorrow, uh, what would they describe about me to their children someday? And I hope it wouldn't be, uh, he worked too much or he only cared about money, or I hope it would be about character lessons. And, you know, this is what I learned from him. This is what his view on treating people it taught me. Th- those sorts of deeper core lessons that are easy to blow over. But you, if anything, that's where you want to focus your energy as a parent might be. Chris, just forgive me for one second. I have to ask you this because you don't often get a seal on the line to ask questions. But I heard Jocko the other day on his podcast, Jocko Link's podcast, he said quite often the seals get a lot of acknowledgement for the work they do, and rightly so. He said, however, the wives are the ones that don't get recognised. And he talked about the fact that what a wife of a seal or a ranger or a marine, anyone in the services goes through. And he acknowledged them and said they're the the real heroes of what they put up with. And I heard you just a minute ago, you acknowledged you must have a wonderful wife because you've been together for a long time and still are. But I've heard you mention her cocktail philosophy. Just to finish us up, can you talk me through your wife's lessons of her cocktail philosophy? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll clean that up or she'll kill me. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, she... My wife's amazing, and Jocko's exactly right. And and look, I get the the easy answer on that. If people wonder why, I mean, there's obvious reasons, right? There, there, there's massive support you get from family. It's a very difficult lifestyle. But here, in a nutshell, here's what it boils down to for me: the the psychological stress that that a spouse uh, goes through when a uh, their their other is deployed overseas. When you're in a combat zone, if you're deployed for six months, um, depending on how hot the conflict is and what type of unit you're in. I mean, I went months on end without being anywhere close to harm's way, right? You can fly around a place like Iraq, et cetera. Danger in those environments, it's, it's a matter of, you know, really closing the distance with enemy that will do you harm. And 
50 feet matter, 100 feet matter, a mile makes you as safe as if you're at home. So the majority of your time, um, you're pretty safe. Now, there are absolutely units that go that were in situations where their lives are on the line 18 hours a day for extended periods. But that's just not the norm. And it certainly wasn't for, for in my own personal career. But your spouse doesn't know that. Every time they wake up, every time they go to sleep, they, they assume you're getting shot at right then and there. And you can't communicate enough to give them the sense of when you're, when you're in danger and when you're safe. So I, the stress for them is much higher. Now, my, uh, and, and the amazing ones, they just, they just deal with it. They're just rock stars. But my wife's um, cocktail idea is she, she's just a really good example for me of maintaining your sort of balanced approach and keeping your own sanity. Like I, every high-performance person I know, 99% of them, uh, they're kind of unique and weird people, right? You, you're, you're wired in a pretty intense way, and you can, you've got some demons that can eat you alive if you're not careful. And uh, so my wife has been a great you know, teacher to me about finding the right sort of balance, which she calls the cocktail, like understanding what's the mix you need in your personal life to keep your own sort of manic behavior and inner voices and demons at bay, right? So for me, that's, that's been a great lesson. And I know now over time and I constantly am trying to, to tweak it and adjust it, how much sleep I need, how much exercise I need, and what sort of time I need alone, because I'm a naturally sort of introverted person, um, how much reading I need to do to keep other parts of my brain awake, how much time I need with my family, focus on the business. So this, this blend of time, we've only got so much of it, it's equal across the board, right? So how I distribute that time is my sort of personal cocktail. And I know when it gets out of whack, if I have too busy of a week and I can't work out like I, I need to, or if I'm not able to see my kids enough, or I'm not paying attention to the, to the business that we that were involved in, that will take a toll. Not today, but in if I miss three days of workouts, I, I know now I'm going to be a curmudgeon on Thursday or Friday because this is, this is how I get out bad energy. Right? And so being disciplined about that and just saying, this is the, this is the playbook I need to run as many days as possible uh, for as long as possible. And it'll keep me on balance. I think it's really critical, but it's a very introspective exercise and it takes a lot of sort of reflection on what is it that makes me that balanced person that I need to be. It's a good lesson, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. So I owe a lot. A lot to my wife, not just that, but uh, that's one of the big ones. Well, we should let you get back to your family, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. People who want to know about the books, the work you do at the McChrystal Group and so on, where do you send people to, mate? So they can check out our website, McChrystalGroup.com, uh, or just Google us. You know, our, t- our books, Team of Teams and One Mission are available with all the big distributors. And uh, there's plenty of information on our website, and we'd love for them to Poke around, give us a shout if they're interested in anything. Mate, this has been a real honor. Thank you for everything you do. Thanks for spending time with us for Rocktober. It's been a real, uh, real treat, mate. And we're very, very grateful for your time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you both. Really great conversation and uh, good luck with everything you're doing. If I'm uh, over in your neck of the woods, we'll grab a beer. You got it, mate. Absolutely. Just keep yours away from Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Noted, noted. Hi there, I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I love the Mojo Radio Show and happy Rocktober, everybody. Certainly takes a certain type of person to be a Navy SEAL, doesn't it, when you talk to these guys? Yes, it does. There are 
loads of learnings we can take from these guys. And I think Navy SEALs, for me, I've become very, very interested in probably the last two and a half to three years in what makes these guys tick. But most importantly, how do we how do we take that and apply that to our own world? Whether it be a sole operator, we've got a small team of three people, or you're running a company with 800 people. And I'm just going to say, just on that, Robbo, last week I did a keynote speech down in country Victoria here in Australia for PowerCore and City Power. Very successful power company. These are the guys working out on the lines, putting up our power, which basically, let's face it, keeps us operating. Without those guys, mm-hmm. we don't have lights, power, energy, refrigerators, <laughs> charge, charging our mobile phones, God forbid, yes. uh, <laughs> in, in our homes. And we, these guys, you know, they're, they're a fantastic bunch of guys and we spend some time talking about what can we take from the Navy SEALs and apply to our own world and our wellness, our health, our relationships, the bedroom, the boardroom, getting it done, leadership strategy. And uh, I think what was most fascinating, these guys took it and were able to apply it to their own world. And I think that's what we need to do is not hold these guys in a high regard where it's unachievable. It's no different to Joe DeSena on week one of Rocktober is don't compare yourself to these guys. Say, I take the learning, I take the hard work they've done. I take their attitude. I get their tips and tools. Now, how do I apply it to my world and what can I apply it in? I run a kindergarten. Great. How does that apply? I run a team of strategists for an agency. Great. How do I apply it? And uh, I've got to say that there's a lot to love about these guys. And Chris is a really down-to-earth guy who's been there and done that. And his books are great. You know, the other message I would send out from that story you were just telling about your keynote speech last week is that if you live in the northern areas of New South Wales and you're driving along the highway and look up and see a bunch of guys in combat greens with SLRs slung over their shoulder climbing uh, the electricity poles, you probably don't have to panic too much. Maybe they've just taken Gary's talk a bit too literally. <laughs> Hashtag getting it done. <laughs> Roger that. Any notes this week? Are we loading anybody up with some rocket fuel this week? Yeah, no, a couple of uh, two five-starers. Oh, Roger that. Nice one. Who are we talking about? A big shout-out to Steve. Steve Lowry. Steve-o. Ma- Ma- it's Mark Lowry's brother, Steve. Steve-o. <laughs> Steve-o. Uh, he said, great show with great insights. Love your work, guys. With a smiley face, that's all you need. The smiley face earns him the bottle of rocket fuel. And here's one that sounds uh, a bit interesting. Mm. Bunny from Oz. Bunny? Ah. Bunny wrote, five stars. Can't get enough of these guys. And great to hear the topics covered. It's just like sitting in a bar having a drink or two between three people. <laughs> it's funny because that's que- what we're doing. <laughs> Questions are always interesting, down to earth, and answers given, always easy to understand and follow. So there you go. Thanks, oh, nice. Bunny Thanks, from Oz. Bunny. Yeah. So what's this all about? The idea is, folks, go into iTunes, leave us a review, and just, just do what Steve-O did. One line, less than 10 words, just get it done. Hmm. And that's what gets our mojo working because we don't have any, sadly, any advertising or sponsors or stuff to sell or make money out of. We just do it from the, the goodness of our... <coughs> Hello, it's friends, Tim Terms and Dosecki. Uh, the goodness of our... <laughs> goodness of our <laughs> so get on, give us a review, guys, because it does... Uh, it gets us in the studio each week to try and put something together to make sense to you guys. And um, in return... Uh, Steve Bunny. And... Uh, Bunny from Oz Boing. will be sending you the Rocktober rocket fuel. It's our own smoky Louisiana, Illinois, 
chili sauce that's got a little bit of uh, Carolina Reaper, a bit of ghost, two of the hottest chilies in the world. But I gotta say, it's not blow your head off insane hot. It's just got a really nice afterburn. Afterburn. See what I've done there? Afterburn and tying back to the armed services. Uh, oh, that thing you're just linking the whole show uh, together, yeah, mate. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're the yeah, anchor. Yeah, 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 I'm the anchor. <laughs> Uh, there's, another, there's another Navy reference. Yeah, the oh, look, there you um, go, without even thinking about it. So we've had a few reviews come through now. Anybody who we read out, you've left us a review, email us at info at themojoradioshow.com. Send us your details. It's in the mail. We'll pay for it all. We've produced it. And a special thanks to Matt from Bear Brewing. This thing is naturally fermented, so it's good for you. And a special thanks to Rodney from Chili Bowl. Chili Bowl. Chili Bowl. And uh, you will find the details for both those guys on our show notes. Uh, it's all good. Yeah, it's good. Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Now, last week on the program, we played a little bit of Steve Jobs. And it's funny, in the back of my mind, and I've been thinking about this for a week between shows, the back of my mind, I always remember the memorial service that happened at the Apple campus at Cupertino. And Coldplay, one of the great bands of the world, arguably, played at that. And there was a great story Chris Martin told at that memorial where Steve Jobs, in fact, you know what? Just, just, let's just hear what Chris had to say. Thank you so much, everybody. What a treat to be here. We played this song for Steve 10 years ago and he said it was shit. <laughs> he said we'd never make it. And the thing I was thinking about during the week is that as much as we hold Steve Jobs as being probably one of the great innovators ever, certainly of his generation in a business sense, and you look at how he impacted the world with technology and innovation, you've got to be careful who you listen to because if Coldplay had have listened to him when he said their song was crap, that could have dinted them. We may not have had all the fabulous music that Chris Martin and the band have produced. So there's a couple of things that come to mind for me. A couple of episodes ago, we had Kyla Colburn, who is the ambassador for Singularity University out here. And Kyla talked about when you make a decision, don't just think with your head, think with your, with your heart, with your whole body and see how it feels. Does that feel right? And the second part is I think you need to have counsel around you, the people who are in your corner, have the right people there that you listen to because you can listen to the wrong people and we could miss out on, on you giving the world your music. So um, I kind of like that piece. It's pretty cool, isn't it? I've got to say, though, Steve Jobs maybe musically wasn't so strong because I think he mentioned last week that he didn't think that the Beatles were as strong, were strong as solo artists as they were as a group. But when you take Mc- Lennon and McCartney, I'm not sure he was quite on the mark there either. But, you know, you, can't, you certainly can't deny his creativity when it comes to electronics, that's for sure. The Mojo Radio Show. excited about this. One of my favourite all-time Aussie frontmen, I've got to say. What a character. 
So our next guest is just put everybody in different parts of the world who may not be Aussies in the frame. Our next guest is probably, if you, if you saw this guy in the street, he's one of the most identifiable lead men in rock in Australia. He was the front man for a band called Rose Tattoo, who did have international acclaim. He then fronted a band called The Party Boys, who we have featured on the Mojo Radio Show before. He's been a TV personality. He's even been in theatre. And what a lot of people probably wouldn't know is that Angry Anderson actually was in politics. He was for a little while. And you know the other thing I love about Angry is he's not the type of person where you walk down your street and you see someone and you go, I think that's Angry Anderson. (laughs) It's either it is or it isn't, right? You can't mistake him. More than likely it is. Yeah, covered in tats. What is he, about five foot six, five foot seven? Not even that. In heels. In um, heels, yes. So we are very delighted to welcome Angry Anderson to the show. Uh, welcome to Rocktober, mate. Right. Mojo. Love it. Love a bit Got of mojo, mojo in the morning. Mojo working. There you go. Now, I want to start there with you, Angry, because you, you are about to go back. Well, you're currently on the road, rocking and rolling again. Mm. You've got your chill, mojo working, chill, but, chill. Yeah, but but that's the thing. I, the rumour has it you are 70 years old. How have you managed that? It's um, drugs. Um, <laughs> that's the simple answer. Um, you, you know, <laughs> rumour has it. Um, much like many years ago, rumour had it I was dead. Um, the, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, can we not dwell on that? Uh, I, I'm very fond these days of saying that, as I used to be, uh, fond of saying size is does not about size, it's irrelevant, so is age. But, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, it's no secret, yes. Well, I think that's the point Gary's making, though, Angry, is I, I reckon you're every bit as good today as you were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. How, how do you manage that? Ah, bless you, youngster, bless you. I'm fond of saying I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm good once as I ever was. <laughs> um, I stole that, by the way. It's not, uh, Very good, not though. I'm not too sure he said that was certainly wasn't Winston Churchill. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about it is I think it's one of the things that um, I was actually talking about it only this morning. I mean, you know, that sounds like I've just made that up, but I'm very true. I was, saying, I was saying to someone about performing, um, it's the one thing that stayed the same with intensity because, I mean, you know, as you get older and, um, you know, we – we can, we've, we've moved on from the 70 part. Um, but, um, you know, around about 40, 45, I noticed that, uh, you know, I started to have, you know, difficult with my hearing, <laughs> go figure. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing too was eyesight came along around about 50. And But what happens is, of course, as the longer you live and, and the more that you punish yourself and, you know, let's face it, I've self-flagellated many, many times over the years, Um but um, don't make a habit of it out of it these days. But the you know, so things deteriorate or they break down with with use and or uh, just the aging process. But um, the one thing that doesn't diminish and the one thing that has stayed true, as true as it was when we first started, is our passion for for doing what we do, playing rock and roll or singing rock and roll in my case. And that's the one thing that hasn't diminished, and that's why. I'm still doing it because um, I still can. And I've always promised myself, like most of us, 
the, the moment that I feel that I'm not relevant, I'll throw it away. I'll just give it away and I'll, I'll find something else to do with my time. Geez, Angry, you'll be performing until you're 120. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> well, I hope, <laughs> bless you. Uh, I hope I actually don't live that long, but um, uh, having said that, um, I remember years and years ago stealing the line from um, Little Richard that rock and roll will save your soul. Well, of course it does. And one of the things about your soul is, you see, soul never ages. It educates, but it never ages. And and rock and roll, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, has kept me young. What does that mean, though, Angry? Tell me, tell me, what what what's the philosophy behind that? That rock and roll just just explain that for me from you from your own perspective. I am a survivor of uh, when I was a kid. I was um, abused by a pedophile. And uh, absorbed that as a child. Um, got you know we we moved to to a an extremely uh, working class area in Melbourne uh, called Pasco Vale. In those days, it was yeah brutally um, working class, and so it was a, it was a pretty rough area to grow up in, and it was it was difficult for me. Um, I was obviously internally trying to deal with issues that I had you know, very or no understanding of and didn't know how to cope. Um, I was extremely sad kid inside, although I learnt to mask that as most of us do that survive those experiences. And um, um, when I got to my teenage years, um, obviously your whole life changes, puberty sets in, and that's not just a physical thing, but it's a mental, emotional, spiritual thing as well. And um, I become... Very, very angry, and the violence that was visited on me by my biological father, and the violence that he taught me. Um, he was an amateur boxer because he was a jockey, and he used boxing to keep his weight down. Um, so that aggression just exploded and came out of me, and um, I was able to, before it sent me to jail or got me killed or whatever. Um, uh, the youngest of the Anderson boys was still living at home, and he was a uh, a drummer in a swing band, and he introduced me to music. So in those years when I was being, when I was uh, being abused, um, um, my recall is, is, you know, five and six, um, uh, I actually had the escape into music because I had, I had music as a place to go. That's why I can, with every qualification, I can say um, that rock and roll saved my soul. And if it does it for me, then of course it could do it for anyone. I just want to camp there for a second because you you built your personal brand, Angry Anderson, Rose Tattoo, The Tats. That whole, your character and the character of the band was all based on hard rockin', good pub rock, sex, drugs and rock and roll. But when your first child was born, you had to make some changes and walk away from that. Tell me about that time. That must have been a hard thing to walk away from that when your character and your reputation was built on it. What did you go through to have to walk away from that? Um, astute observation on your part. Um, I That's part of my, when I do public speaking, that's part of my presentation too. Um I, it's a it's an an amazing experience when and I I did this during the seventies I I started to 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 look for my spiritual being, knowing that it resided within us of course within everybody. Um, 
I started to realise that life indeed, um, if you allow it to, it'll take care of you. So uh, in a sense, it's not that we should relax or take it for granted, but we, well, we are allowed to uh, accept that. And if we embrace that, then, um, uh, you know, life can be a, an amazing experience and it can be the experience that it's supposed to be. So come forward all those years, and there I am at, you know, Rose Tattoo, at, we're at their zenith, the touring America, you know, we're the next big thing. Um, but, you know, at the, at, the, at the same time, we were known for our, our abuses, you know, for the abuse, like a lot of rock bands, you know, we, we were very abusive with alcohol and drugs, and but we were known as the baddest of the bad and, you know, the worst of the worst, whatever. And while we were spinning and while we were still hot, it was, like, amazing. But there's only one predictable finish to that, right? You crash and burn. So um, then – but the wisdom, and this gets back to the spiritual belief, the wisdom of of the creational process, the divine, whatever you like to call it. Um, I had a relationship with a stunning young lady uh, for a couple of years, and uh, she got pregnant. Um, I went away touring. She went through the pregnancy without me and, um, and I came back and I had a two-week-old daughter and, and that was the moment that changed my life. I just remember, and I say this when I do public speaking, I, the first time I saw her, I realised my old life was over. And um, so that's when, we, you know, I've always said that Roxanne saved my life. And um, I know it sounds overly romantic, but the reason that I wanted to call her Roxanne because Roxanne is the classic, for me, it's the classic rock and roll name for a for a girl. And and if if um, if if if, you know, if my resurrection or my, my my salvation was can be manifested in a human being, then it's her. You've you've said that Rod Stewart and the Faces were a heavy influence on you. Tell me about the. Tell me about the. If there was a ballad, the best summed up Angry Anderson. Let's talk about that other side of you. Call it the spiritual side or that change once Roxanne was born. It, it's deep in you, isn't it? There's, there is this other music side. Like we hear and we've played some of the tats. We know that rock, the, the the pub rock we've grown to love. But there is another side to Angry Anderson based on your influence from Rod Stewart, The Faces, and ballads, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm getting goosebumps here. I'm getting a bit of a spooky feeling. Um, yes, there is. Um, and um, uh, you've been reading my mail or something. Um, I'm, I am the most frustrated torch singer, and I love the way that, you know, like uh, there's a song on one of the – and Buster used to play this song, Buster Brown, um, you know, my first, you know, real R&B rock and roll band – used to play a, a Rod Stewart song called Borstal Boys, which is about, you know, the Borstal um, chain of Borstal um, juvenile detention centres in, in England. And that's an amazing, great rocking song. You know, and then he can sing a song like Lady Day or um, one of my favourites, obviously, Maggie May. Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say to you. It's late September and I really should be back at school. And yet, um, you know, you, you, know, you just hear these wonderful 
renditions of some classic blues, R&B mainly, but some some blues songs. I mean, on some of the early albums, the early Rod Stewart stuff that's been released, and he's singing covers of the same songs the early Animals did, and the early Stones did, and you know, all you know, Fleetwood Mac and Savoy Brown, and all those great English rock, you know, blues bands based on you know rock and roll, but they you know basis blues. Um, so he, he was covering all the you know all those those incredible songs that tore your heart out. You know, the first cut is the deepest. Is, just, you know, every time I hear it, it just moves me to tears. I've lived that stuff, you know. I've walked in his shoes, so to speak. First cut is the deepest. Baby, I know the first cut is the deepest. When it comes to being lucky, she's cursed. When it comes to loving me, she's worse. By, by way of getting... Uh, another point across too is is that a psychologist once said to me, and, and I was I was working with a bunch of people, Bernardos, and um, and she was a shrink, but she wasn't. I wasn't seeing her as a shrink. We were, you know, dealing with um, uh, severely abused kids in the mid eighties, like eighty six, eighty seven, or somewhere around there. And um, I remember she said, you know, like. Your songs, they're all, they're all, they're different, you know. I said, well, Rose Tattoo's a pretty different band. And she said, yeah, I know, but I love your lyrics. I love it. And I just thought, oh, wow, this, you know, this, this young, bright chick who was dedicated to helping severely abused children. But she could feel the pain in what I'd written because Rose Tattoo's songs are all about being male. And they're not aimed at, Trying to capture the attention or the adoration, or the or, you know, or the or the, the fan loyalty of girls. All Rose Tattoo songs are unashamedly aimed at boys, and it's all about um, it's all about you know what boys go through, and, and and some of us, too many of us, like too many girls, and that's why I think it's a wonderful thing that these days that there are girl bands or girl singers, songwriters or girls in bands that are actually starting to write about girl stuff, you know, stuff about, like, what it's like to be a girl. I mean, in a real, real sense. I mean, which I was listening to this thing on the radio the other day about Carol King, and, and one of the greatest songs I've ever heard is Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And she wrote that when she was 17 because, obviously, she just had her first sexual romantic fall, you know, tragically in love with some guy and she's probably, you know, given him the greatest gift of all, well, you know, that she had to offer at the time, which is herself, whether physically or emotionally or both. And then she's questioned, you know, like so many girls would and do to this day. Yes, yeah, okay, you loved me last night or tonight, but we used to love me tomorrow. And I mean, that's, that's so poignant. That is so... Every time I hear that song, it just rips my heart out. Let's sort of sort of talk about that for a second, Angry, and we're gonna. Mm. I want to track through some Tats songs shortly and talk about the songwriting. But mm. you occur to me to, to be a guy that is quite open with your stories. You're happy to share them, and it seems like you want to share them now to help people. When That's in those true. earlier days. 
would, was it always like that? Have you always been the guy who was, I mean, it just occurs to me that maybe there was a change where you were going through suffering, it was coming out in your music and you were suffering and looking for other ways to deal with it. Whereas today you've got a different MO. Today it's about being of service and helping people. Is that, is that a change in you that you've had where now you are happy to share that suffering, so to speak? It, it is and it's natural. And in the early days I didn't realise I was doing it. But then again, that's again going back to the wisdom of the divine, the creational process. The process evolves like life itself, and that's the point. If you accept that, you have faith that it that it will that it will guide you and take care of you, and it will you know sucker you when you are, when you're in pain, and it will embolden you when you're brave, and all those kind of things. Then then that's what will happen, and you have that life. So. My involvement, if you like, in inverted commas, but my 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 revealing, that was a process that came about slowly but surely and methodically because, you know, as I grew and became more conscious of who I am and what I am, um, um, then certain things were allowed to be free. When I wrote Suddenly, you know, someone said to me, Suddenly, probably, you know, a beautiful romantic lyric. And I said, yes, it's about a man being set free. So it's a beautiful lyric. can be related to, to man-woman love. And I said, and it certainly is, because I wrote it about my daughter. Because finally, it's like that moment, <clears throat> talking about it before, about the, the, the moment of realisation. I remember when I looked into her eyes, and she was only two weeks old, and I realised that I'd never seen eyes like hers before. I'd never seen eyes that were so innocent, so uh, unblemished. And, and I knew even though, you know, paediatricians will tell you that in two weeks they can't focus and can't actually make out images. I, I know it in my heart and soul that she knew exactly who I was because she'd heard tape recordings of my voice, etc. you know, and I'd... Um, but when she looked at me, I realised that no one in the whole history of my life had ever looked at me in that way before. Nobody. And nobody would again because you only had that moment once. And philosophically speaking, that's a wonderful experience to have, to know that because every moment you only have once. I mean, that's in the, you know, the big, 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 big picture. But, um, you know, my, my, my being set free started on that moment, at that moment, because I was able to walk away from drugs and alcohol and bad behaviour and, and embrace a new and better and more productive and, and a more healing experience. Now, come forward to... Um, to today or, you know, in recent years, I part of that consciousness was to realise, yes, that's what I'm doing because a very great wisdom was given to me some years ago by a, a leader of a spirit, a group that, that, that studied under his tuition or tutelage uh, spiritual matters on how to be a spiritual being and how to recognise the spirituality of, of, of the being that you are and embrace that so that you can become balanced then because we're supposed to be equally as half, you know, half of it's physical, the other half is, is spiritual. And um, 
uh, I, I realised that it's it, 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 one of the great wisdoms that um, Dr. Groves imparted on us devotees was that if you reach in, you reach without. And if you reach out, you reach within. The two things are simultaneous. So by me writing down in lyric um, what it was like to be me, to experience my pain, of course I was resonating with thousands and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of other young blokes or older blokes or young boys or whatever that were going through and had experienced or were experiencing the same things that I was talking about. And that that's, that led to me um, uh, working with people in a, in a purposeful sense, um, you know, in other words, purposefully with, with premeditation, you know, involving myself with people to be, because see, you know, when I reach out to other people, um, and I, I'm not being bombastic here, but I know that I can affect other people because we all can. We all do. And that's part of the great joy of life is that we all touch one another in a way. We're all connected in a way. So when I reach out to be of whatever help or assistance I can possibly be through my notoriety or my experience or whatever, I reach within and that heals me too. So I always finish off whenever I do public speaking about uh, mental health and about, you know, the emotional, you know, the battle that we all go through. I always resolve it at the end of the talk by saying, um, I thank the audience because you've given me, I say to them, you've given me something that I didn't have before I walked in this room. You've helped me on my journey to healing. Rocktober gold. Just struck more gold, Angry. There's gold right there. Cha-ching. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's... let's uh, Let's play some tracks. Tell me, yep. nominate, nominate the Tats track. So we have listeners around the world. Tell me the Tats track that we would play right now that best represents the best, the rockiest of Rose Tattoo. What would it be? Um, well, Scarred for Life because it, 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 it epitomises or manifests everything that we've been talking about. And at the end, we will resolve it by can't be beaten. To me, that's the statement. That says it all. But Scarred for Life is... Um, you know, when an artist, and I know this from personal experience, so I can speak on other artists' behalf or their behalf, um, you know when you've written a great song. You do. You know, you just knew. You do. And, and you'd be silly or, you know, you'd be less than uh, aware or, or, or intelligent if you didn't know. So you know when you've written a great song. Now, I write lyrics, so I write all the lyrics to the song. So when I write a really good lyric, I know it. You know the moment when you create something that is just like, oh yeah. And I knew when when I when Rob Riley, I had the lyric for Scarred for Life because um, most of it was written along the way, so to speak. And I remember when I heard that da 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 da. da. 
and I just thought, yep, I know the lyric that's going to go with this, and it's going to be one of the greatest rock songs ever written. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> now, tell me something. Um, we can't be beaten at the track. Mm. Yep. I heard you tell a story where mm. you were in the rain at an Arsenal soccer match, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Haven't you done your homework? Now, tell me, tell me, because I, I, whenever I see you, I hear the band, I hear that story, I just think in a business sense, in a social sense, I just think that song has so many levels of learnings to it. Tell me, tell me the background that was the inspiration for that song. Um, it wasn't an Arsenal match. When we first got to London in 1980, there was a rehearsal studio and there was a pub just around the corner. And after rehearsal, we'd all go to the pub um, and not too far away, about half a K away, was the Arsenal ground. So... We said, you know, like Arsenal, we said, yeah, they said, oh, yeah, you know, you've got, to, you've got to follow a team, you know, you've got to follow a team. So we thought, well, you know, Arsenal, it's great. We love it. So we, and, and they said, well, look, look, you know, this, this Saturday there's um, Arsenal were playing someone. And they said, look, come, to, you know, come to the ground. And like, come to the, the game. We went, you see. So um, and that year, Arsenal weren't having a great year. And I think they lost the first match we saw. So anyway, we're two or three or four matches into the season. And, uh, you know, we were at an Arsenal match and they're down again 2-0 at, at half time. And one of the things I'd noticed, every time the crowd sing, you know, because over there everyone's got their song. And what I noticed was whoever whoever's team was going down, uh, their, their fans didn't become despondent at leave at three-quarter time because, you know, the other team was like 60 points ahead, which I've seen happen here. But... No, I'll stand there right to the very end and sing their hearts out. And I thought, that's where we get it from. That's the great Aussie spirit. That is just so, you know, that whole British, you know, like English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh thing that's in Australia and that's part of our DNA. I mean, that's a, that belligerence, that sort of just refusal to accept defeat, you know, like sing in the face of disaster. And I thought, that's amazing. And it, it used to move me to tears. And so anyway, we were standing there one day and, um, you know, I looked down at this pie and I had a pie in my hand and it was half time. We're down one or two nil. And the crowd were just singing their hearts out. And I just thought, I guess this thing came into my head. We can't be beaten. I mean, you can't beat that spirit. You know, that's why, you know, it's an amazing feel. And it was like this, wow. I actually went, I, I ran, I ran to, to, to the men's because I thought, well, I've got to get out of the rain. And I, um, I remember looking down and there was a cigarette packet on the ground and I picked it up and I always, you know, carried a pen with me. And um, I just remember ripping, the, uh, ripping the, the, the packet open and um, writing the lyrics. I went back out. I put, I put it in my pocket and I went back out. The next day, poetically, romantically, whatever you like to say, I woke up. I noticed there was something in the back packet of back uh, pocket of my jeans. I took it out, and yeah, it was water stained, but it was because um, it was written in bio. It was okay. 
and um, the lyrics to Can't Be Beaten. Well, Angry, mate, thank you for joining us. We we really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing your stories. Uh, good to catch up. And, um, mate, we appreciate you being on Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. No, rackers, mate. I, I'm just absolutely true. Now I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high-fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, Mojo, baby. Yeah! Here's one I made earlier. Tell you what, anybody who comes up with excuses not to do something, mm. that guy's back on the road, rocking it out mm. with as much passion, energy, and attitude as he ever has, and he's 70 years old. What's your excuse? Oh, I know, that's right, absolutely. It's <laughs> <That's> fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. It's just fantastic. Absolutely. All right, take us out. Pop quiz, hot shot. Ooh, hang on, I've got to find it. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. So, here it is. Okay, hit me. There's no time to lose, I heard her say. Catch your dreams before they slip away. Dying all the time, lose your dreams, and you will lose your mind. Uh, Got me. Absolutely stumped, sorry. Nice one. See if you can pick it from this. She would never say where she came from. The reason I did that pop quiz hot shot is because I saw a quote on the weekend by Mick Jagger and it just said, and you will lose your mind, lose your dreams and you will lose your mind. And I thought it's kind of, it's part of the, part of what our show is all about, certainly what October's about, is helping people understand how to get their mojo working in and out of work. And ultimately the big picture is help people achieve all their dreams in their world. And I just don't think we should do Rocktober without having a little bit of stones about Mick, Mick and Keith. Well, you can't have so, Rocktober uh, without the stones, let's be honest, really. It's sort of like, uh, well, it's like Mick without Keith, really, isn't it? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Never going to happen. On the Mojo Radio Show, it's Rocktober. So it wouldn't be Rocktober if we didn't do something live. And since we were talking about Coldplay earlier, I think we should actually play that version of Viva La Vida, shouldn't we? Yeah, why don't we play that uh, version from the Steve Jobs Memorial Mm. at the Apple campus Mm. at Cupertino. And this was the song that closed that set paying homage to one of the great innovators, certainly one of the great innovators of our lifetime. So this is Coldplay. It's a live version of Viva La Vida to close week three of October. We're out.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.